Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that illuminates our path from the first chapter of John's Gospel. The next day, John, the baptizer, was standing with two of his disciples, and he watched Jesus walk by. He exclaimed, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you after? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who had followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means anointed. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My rabbi, David Nitsky, has been known to describe the scripture as a beautiful mountain lake. Standing high above the lake, there is much beauty to behold. As soon as we see it, we know deep in our souls that we are close to God. We are affirmed. We may even find some sense of peace or sustenance just looking at the lake and the beautiful scenery. Perhaps we pull out a blanket for a picnic or set up a tent in order to stay a while. Whatever the case may be, it's definitely a Kodak moment. But then, my rabbi asks, what if there's more? What if we're missing some of what, is, what this natural wonder really holds? What if we can't really grasp all there is by just observing from afar? What if we're invited to not only see the beauty of this scene, but to experience it? To not only see the lake from above but to walk along its banks and swim in its waters, to dive in and behold the rich depths beneath the surface, to taste the water and be restored as we drink, to be sustained by the harvest of fish in the lake and vegetation around its banks, to recline around the campfire on one of the beaches of the lake while listening to the stories of others who have explored the lake and are amazed at the wonders they have discovered. Now that's the experience I would rather have. It's not that settling for the Kodak moment is wrong, it's just incomplete. It misses the fullness of all that's being offered. I don't want to settle for standing high above the lake and posing for a selfie. I want the total experience. The Gospel of John that provides our scripture passage this morning, it might be one of the best examples in the New Testament of riches dwelling beneath the surface. John's gospel is dense, it's difficult, and it's different from all the other gospels. You may have seen some of these videos this morning as you were gathering. Do you remember Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other things. One of these things is kind of the same. Can you tell which one is doing their own thing? Okay, it's John. John is the one doing his own thing. He is different. He's not like the others. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of the same. That's why those three are called the synoptic gospels. John, however, is doing his own thing, and that's important for us to know when we attempt to swim around and underneath the waters of John. John's gospel is different. If we go beneath the surface of John's gospel, we immediately run into a world of imagery, symbol, and illusion. Now, imagery is pretty easy for us to understand. It just means that John is presenting us with images much more than he's presenting us words. John wants us to see and think in elaborate pictures. 
Symbol can be a little trickier in the Gospel of John. Something that can help us wrestle with symbol in Scripture is understanding the origin of the actual word symbol. It comes from two Greek words, sum and balin. Sum means together, and balin is to throw. So sum balin, which became the word symbol, actually means to throw two or more things together. Theologian Alexander Shia writes, when we use or make a symbol, we throw two disparate elements together, word and picture, heart and head. Symbol is the capacity to deal with paradox. Symbol holds things in tension to one another. It puts things together that don't always go together, like the lion and the lamb. As we examine the scriptures of John, we should look for and expect symbol. An allusion is an expression that is designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly. It's essentially a hint at something else. John's gospel, in fact, the entire Bible, is full of allusion. Our Hebraic brothers and sisters have a word for it. They call it remez. Everybody say remez. All right, we got it. Remez was an illusionary technique used by many of the biblical writers and certainly by the teachers and rabbis of Jesus' day, including Jesus himself. A remez was a fragment or an image that pointed back to another scripture or to another story. If I were to write a poem and read it to you, and I began that poem with the words, A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, what would come to mind for you? Yes, we get this. Star Wars. Whether or not my poem ever specifically mentioned anything about Star Wars after that, we would receive that poem with Star Wars on the brain. By simply using those well-known words, I would point you to the Star Wars movies and all the characters, stories, and themes they contain. Star Wars would become the backdrop for my poem, the context, the illusion. So when a gospel writer begins his story with the well-known words, in the beginning... Where do we think John is trying to point his audience? Genesis, yes. Specifically, the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, John uses garden imagery throughout his gospel. The garden is so important in the gospel of John that you probably remember that when, in the gospel of John, when, Jesus, when Mary comes upon Jesus after the resurrection, she doesn't recognize him and she mistakes him for the gardener. Only happens in John. In the beginning is John's illusion, his remez, that tells us all to have the garden in mind as we proceed through this gospel account. The scripture that we heard today actually comes from the same first, first chapter of John, the same chapter that begins with the words, in the beginning. John wants us through the looking glass of the garden. Do you see what I just did there? The literary nerds get it. I just remizzed you right there. I said through the looking glass, which hopefully for the literary nerds like myself brought up Alice, um, Alice and the Adventures in Wonderland, right? It's fascinating. I hope you think that's fascinating. Maybe not. Maybe you think it's just curiouser and curiouser. Oh, yeah. See, all right. There's my people. You're in here. Okay, back to the garden. If we are familiar with the Garden of Eden poem, we know that it begins with Adam and Eve together in perfect relationship with, the, with God in the garden. But it doesn't end that way. In fact, the Garden of Eden poems ends with Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, experiencing the consequences of their choices, choices that had led them away from God. 
Now, in John's gospel, we once again hear in the beginning. But in this garden, the poem doesn't end with people moving away from God. This garden poem has God moving into the neighborhood and dwelling among them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and blood and dwelled among us. And then later on in this same chapter, in the illusionary context of the garden, we have the peculiar episode that we heard this morning, where John the Baptist, standing with two of his disciples, sees Jesus walking by and tells his disciples, there he is, God's Passover lamb, and the two disciples leave John and follow Jesus. Now, why in the world would the gospel writer want us to see that story in the context of the Garden of Eden? Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that illuminates our path from the third chapter of Genesis. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? Now this takes place after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit of the tree that God had instructed them not to eat. They are afraid. They are aware of their mistake and they're ashamed. So they hide and watch. Rather than being with God, walking with God in the cool of the evening, talking to God, they assume that they know who God is and how God will respond to their mistakes. So they withdraw and cower and hide. Is it possible that when the writer of John's gospel, that the writer of John's gospel wants us to have all of this in mind when we read about the two disciples who follow after Jesus? Let's hear this again. The next day, John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you after? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, first things first. It was 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Really? Seems like a strange detail for a first century writer. So what we have to do a little investigation, and what's really said there is that it was the 10th hour. And if you use the first century Hebraic method of counting the day hours as from sunrise at 6 a.m. to sunset at 6 p.m., then the 10th hour is 4 o'clock, late in the afternoon. It's a strange detail. Many scholars point to this detail as something that indicates it was the time that everyone else should be getting home. It's the end of the day. Which is why the disciples asked Jesus where he's staying, because they know it's too late in the day to impose on him. So they want to find out where he's going to be so they can visit him another day. But isn't it also interesting that in the passage, that the passage, this passage in Genesis references a time that is late in the day, just like the passage that we just heard, at the time of the evening breeze. This reference to the time of day doesn't seem to be the only remise or illusion within this passage either. In both passages, there are two people given the opportunity to engage the divine when God walks by. And in both passages, the Lord asked the two people a question. In the Genesis garden, God asked the two people, where are you? In John's garden, the two people ask God, 
where are you? Two sets of scriptures, two stories. Both stories include the question, where are you? Both stories include the Lord walking by. Both stories take place at the end of the day. And in both stories, the Lord has a question for two people. Now, not everything about these two stories is similar. There are some very important differences, and those differences primarily have to do with the two people in the stories, Adam and Eve and the two disciples. Now, I would never assume that we could boil any scripture down to one interpretation, let alone the symbolically rich gospel of John. I think the gospel writer has alluded to the garden so that we will see the fundamental difference in the way the people in these stories understand and interact with the divine presence. I think John wants us to see that one pair settled for a selfie while the other pair went swimming. The first difference I recognize between the two pairs is their proximity to God. After their mistake in the garden, Adam and Eve tried to get apart from God. They did not want to be close to God. God walks through the garden and has to ask, where are you? In the garden of John's gospel, when Jesus walks by the two disciples, they fall in line behind him. The two disciples choose to be in close proximity to God. Adam and Eve chose distance. The second difference in the two stories seems to be about position. Adam and Eve view God as other, as completely foreign. They viewed God as so different from themselves that they didn't think God could possibly relate to them after the mistake they had made. They assumed a position of unworthiness. They assumed a position that they believed they had made themselves unworthy of relationship by how they behaved. They believed they were no longer worthy to be in the presence of God. The two disciples in John's gospel, however, follow. They don't pause to wonder if they are too different from Jesus to follow him. They don't pause to wonder if they're worthy. When Jesus turns and asks them, what are you after? They respond with rabbi, which, as the scripture tells us, does mean teacher. But the Hebraic word rabbi comes from a very intimate root word, which actually means my master. Now, it doesn't mean my master in a groveling or tuck your tail between your legs kind of way. It means my master as in complete affection and trust. Calling someone rabbi is placing yourself in a position to become like the one that you're following. It is a position that not only presumes relationship, it requires it. The rabbinical tradition actually uses the image of a disciple being so close to their rabbi that they taste the dust being kicked up by their rabbi's feet as the rabbi walks along. Now that imagery underscores the third difference between the people in these two stories, one of posture. As we have already noticed, the posture of Adam and Eve is not one of following and becoming. It's a posture of hiding and watching. God walks through the garden and they hide and watch because they're afraid. They do not engage. They do not get in the game. They do not believe that they were created in the image of God. Their posture is one of hiding and watching. It's a posture of observation. The two disciples in the Gospel of John that follow Jesus, they're all in. They engage. They get in the game. They want to become like Jesus. They assume a posture of following and doing. The fourth difference I think I recognize between the people in these stories is about purpose. 
Now, because of their distance and hiding, Adam and Eve claim an outsider's purpose. They purpose to hide from God rather than walk with God. They purpose to talk about God rather than to talk with God. The outsider's purpose is to know things about God instead of actually knowing and experiencing God. Now, this one stings a little bit for me because I think I do this sometimes. Sometimes I fail to step into my identity as a child of God and instead settle for the purpose of an outsider. Sometimes I work really hard to get the perfect selfie. I convince myself that I need to know all the right things about God, that I need to believe the right things, follow the right rules, read the right books, that somehow if I can just get everything straight and right, then I can get access. Then I'll have earned the relationship, earned the ability to walk with God and talk with God because I got everything right. The truth is we're never on the outside with God. We are not outsiders. We are beloved children. The two disciples in John's gospel don't settle for the purpose of an outsider. They don't purpose to talk about Jesus as he walks by. They walk and talk with him. They don't purpose to know facts about Jesus. They purpose to know Jesus. They want to know where he's living. They want to know how he's living. They want to share meals with him and share their lives with him. Their purpose is not to get God right, but to get with God. Now, these first four markers reveal a fundamental problem with not only the way that Adam and Eve understood God, but also the way many well-meaning people of the faith have understood and continue to understand God. The mistake of Adam and Eve isn't finished. We still carry it around. In many ways, we have brought it out of the garden and kept it with us. Anytime we view Jesus as the one and only exception, someone to which we could never relate, someone like which we could never be, we are repeating the mistake of Adam and Eve. Every line of John's gospel declares that Jesus is not the exception to an otherwise corrupt universe. He is the revelation that the human and the divine coexist, just as they did in the Garden of Eden. Remember some balin, the word that we get symbol from, throwing things together that we don't think belong together, symbol? This is the reality that Adam and Eve missed in the garden. This is the reality that the disciples of John's garden grasp. The oneness of the divine and the human. The oneness of spirit and matter. Heaven and earth united. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came and dwelled among us. This is not a statement of exception and separation. This is a statement of oneness. Yeshua, the Meshiach, Jesus, the Christ, is an unequivocal statement of oneness. And this oneness is the most radical idea we as Christians put forth to the world. We are the ones that say that the human and the divine can inhabit not only the same place, but the same body. John does not invite us into the garden in order to limit sacredness to one man at one moment in time, making Jesus the exception. John invites us back to the beginning, back to the garden precisely so that we can behold the essential sacredness of everything, everywhere, all the time. 
Rather than seeing Jesus as the exception, rather than seeing God as the beautiful lake that we observe from a distance, we are invited to recognize Jesus as the revelation and engage the one who lifts the veil to reveal that God is in us, the one in whose image we are made, the one whose breath we carry around inside us. We're invited into full engagement and submersion to taste and see and swim the depths because we are one. How could we hide from that which is all around us? How could we talk about God using God's own breath? How could we be outsiders when God dwells among us and within us? Heaven and earth are one. Matter and spirit inhabit the same space. The human and divine dwell together, not just in Jesus, but in us. Which brings us to the fifth and final difference I recognize between these two stories that John invites us to compare. The path. The path that the two disciples chose in John's gospel was a path that followed after God. The path that Adam and Eve chose in Genesis 3 was a path that led out of the garden and away from God. But we already know that God didn't stay in the garden. John's two disciples saw him walking by one day. God went with them. In fact, God went before them. And they went after God. The Bible, our history, our faith, and our experiences reveal that God has never stopped walking around in the coolness of the evening. Wanting the communion of a shared meal. Desiring good conversation hoping for relationship, and looking for disciples. What will we do in response? Will we hide and talk about God as he walks by? Or will we follow and talk with God? Will we settle for observation or accept the invitation to submersion? Selfies or swimming? Will we believe Jesus to be the only exception in a corrupt and divided universe? Or will we recognize him as the revelation of oneness that declares our true proximity, position, purpose, posture, and path? Our God walks through the garden looking for disciples. When he turns to ask, what are you after? May we all say, Rabbi. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, sovereign of the universe. You are the Lord of all creation, the God of the garden. We are grateful for the beauty and depth into which we are invited. We bless you for the oneness of this reality. We thank you that our rabbi, our savior, and our brother, Yeshua, still walks by and invites us to follow. We want to walk with you. We want to place our feet in the footprints you leave. We want to taste the dust of your feet. Help us to follow. Help us to engage. Help us to come down from our perches of observation and immerse ourselves in you. We ask for your help, and we praise you for your example in the name of Jesus. Amen.